Yeah, Howard Hendricks always said a uh, mist in the pulpit translates into a fog in the congregation. And I, uh, as David said, I've been uh, not feeling well for several days. Uh, yesterday I had no voice. Today I've got one for now. So uh, if I do start fogging you out, somebody uh, start praying for me quick. And if I'm really fogging you out, throw something at me. I, uh, unfortunately, we don't have hymn books. Those, uh, that's part of the reason perhaps we don't have them. But anyway... This morning we're going to look at a couple of stories in 1 Samuel. We're back in 1 Samuel. One story in David's life, one story in Saul's life. One of these stories is one of the more bizarre stories in the Old Testament. It's the story of of Saul and the witch of Endor. Most of us have childhood memories of... uh, Telling ghost stories, maybe late at night at a uh, at a slumber party, maybe sitting around a campfire somewhere off in the woods, listening to to ghost stories. I can remember one that would always get told whenever we were out with uh, junior high or high school kids. When I was a youth pastor, would always get told about the the axe murderer who had died somewhere up in this particular forest, and how uh, he would sneak around and creep up on unsuspecting campers sitting around a campfire and you build this story up and right at the you know at the scary punchline somebody else that you'd set up in advance would pull out a hatchet and stick it in the uh, wood on the fire and sparks would go everywhere and everybody would scream and laugh and it worked it did its job it scared people you know these are are made up stories about people who come back from the dead these stories are designed to to scare and to entertain well, this morning we're going to look at a creepy story that really happened. It's not designed to scare us. It's not designed even to entertain us. It's designed to communicate some crucial things about life. Like I said, we're going to look at the story of Saul and the witch of Endor. This is a woman that Saul hired to call Samuel up from the grave to answer some questions for Saul. And I think much to this woman's shock, when uh, they did this, Saul, or Samuel actually did come forward, spoke with Saul. Now this story is placed right in the middle of another story, a story of David being discharged from the Philistine army. For some reason, uh, the, uh, the author, the editor of 1 Samuel starts to tell David's story, gets two verses into it, and right there sticks Saul's story which happens later on, but he sticks it right in the middle. And then after Saul's story, we get back to David's story. Obviously, he wants us to look at these two stories together. They relate to each other somehow. And that's one of the things we're going to try to figure out as we go through these passages. What is the relationship between these two stories? But anyway, let's get started. We're going to look at chapter 28 and 29 of 1 Samuel. Let me start with the beginning of chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Scene opens with Achish, the king of Gath, one of the five kings of the Philistines, the Philistine uh, country was ruled by five city-states with five kings, and those five kings, a uh, Pentapolis, ruled all of the Philistines. And one of them, Achish, 
happens to be David's patron. If you remember, David fled Israel to get away from Saul. But he did this against God's direct commandment for him to stay in Israel. This was disobedience. David was afraid, so he ran away. But so far, things hadn't been going too bad. Achish had given him a city of his own. David would go from that city out and raid the Amalekites, who were the enemy of God's people historically. Then David would take the loot he got from the Amalekites, and he'd go back to Achish and give him the loot and say, I got this from raiding Israel. Achish thought, well, David's certainly burning his bridges. He must really be loyal to me if he's treating Israel that way. There's no way he can go back. So Achish really began to trust David. So now... Here, Achish and the other other uh, kings are getting ready to invade Israel. It may even be that because of thinking David was raiding Israel with impunity, that these Philistines thought, well, Israel must be weak. They're not fighting back. Now may be the time to conquer Israel. But for whatever reason, they're ready to make a concerted invasion of Israel, to conquer Israel once and for all. And Achish calls to David and says, of course, you'll be going with us. Achish thinks it's only natural. David's been raiding Israel for the last year and a half or so, and so why not? Why can't he go in with them? David answers in an intentionally ambiguous answer. He says to Achish, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish assumes that what David means is, Well, you've only heard how I've been beating the Israelites. Now you're going to get a chance to see it. And so Achish's uh, response is, well, if you do that, then I'm going to make you my bodyguard, a place of honor for the rest of your life. See, David wanted Achish to hear this as a, uh, a, a as an expression of loyalty, but it may very well have been a veiled threat. What Achish would have seen is in the middle of the fighting, David and his men turn on the Philistines and start wiping out Philistines. You see where David has has entrapped himself, where his sin has gotten him? Now he's in a predicament. He has to go with the Philistines and either invade Israel, fight against the people someday he hopes to lead, fight against God's anointed, something David would never do, or in the midst of the battle, turn on this huge Philistine army and get wiped out, squashed like a bug. So that's David's predicament. But as soon as the author introduces the predicament, the scene shifts to, to something that happens uh, a couple days later. Something that happens to Saul, the witch of Endor. Look at verse 3. This sets the stage. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Now, there are two pertinent facts the author wants to establish. First, Samuel is dead, and he's buried. Secondly, Saul has been very aggressive in getting rid of all of the spiritists and the mediums. Saul has expelled them. Actually, that's probably a euphemism for having them executed. He's gotten rid of these people who were drawing the Israelites away to worship other gods and to get involved in demonic activities. That's exactly what the Scriptures told Saul to do. In Leviticus chapter uh, 20, verse 6, it says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute himself by following them. I will cut him off from his people. 
In the same chapter, verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their blood will be on their own heads. So Saul was doing the right thing by getting rid of these people. And then the story starts in chapter 4. The Philistines, or verse 4, excuse me, the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Okay, the Philistines had come by this time all the way to Shunem. Shunem is right dab smack in the middle of Israel. It's right in this valley called the Valley of Jezreel, which is a very wide valley, almost a plain. It's the only place you can get from the flat coastal plains all the way to the Jordan River without having to cross any mountains or hills. One of the reasons the Philistines had never bothered to completely conquer Israel in the past is the Philistines were used to fighting in the plains. They liked the coastal plains where their chariots were, were a strategic value. But the Israelites were guerrilla fighters. They stayed in the hills and in the mountains. And so the uh, Philistines just left the hills and, and the mountainous country to them while the Philistines controlled all the plains and the flatlands. But now they decided it was time to deal with Israel. And the, the Valley of Jezreel cuts Israel right in half, almost exactly in half. And so what they were doing was bringing their chariots in. They were going to, to cut Israel in half and then take their time taking it apart piece by piece. To paraphrase uh, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, the, their strategy against the Israeli, Israelite army was to cut it in half and kill it. And that's what they were about to do. And when Saul, Saul saw all the Philistines coming, he was scared to death. He was terrified. Now, why was Saul so scared? Realize Saul is no coward. He's a, a very brave man. In, in chapter 14, it talks about him being a valiant warrior. He had no fear. He was known for killing thousands of Philistines. He had faced Philistine armies before. But now he's terrified. Why? See, Saul's fear is a product of his guilt. Before he had faced battles, knowing that God had sent him, that God was there, that God would win the battle. And so he was fearless. And now, as much as he's trying to hide it, deep down he knows that he has abandoned God, that he's turned his back on God, that he's been avoiding God. He's still been doing all the religious things, but in his heart, he's been avoiding God. And deep down, he knows why God is not with him. You know, so often, the, 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 our fear is, is not a, a product of the circumstances, of the situation. Sure, it may be very difficult circumstances. We may have a lot of adrenaline flowing. But if God is for us, who can be against us? If He is with us, we have absolutely nothing to fear. We know that He will provide everything we need to take care of the situation. And that's, that's a fact. That's reality. That's not just a, 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 a nice kind of religious thought. But so often we're unable to really trust God like this because our consciences are not clean before God. And it's the, it's the insecurity that a cloudy conscience before God 
that breeds this kind of fear. We know we've been avoiding Him. We know we've been holding on to things in our lives that don't belong there. We've been trying to maintain priorities that aren't right, that aren't going to work. And deep down, we know that we have turned away. We have avoided God. Anyway, Saul tries everything he can to get God to talk to him, but God won't talk. Now, why? I mean, Saul just wants to, to, to find out from God what he should do. That sounds like a good, a good thing, but God won't talk to him. Why not? This is one of the big questions of this passage. You know, has, has Saul just done one too many sins? Has Saul out the grace of God? I don't think so. But what is going on? Well, like I said, that's one of the things that we're going to have to answer from this passage. Let's keep going with the story. Verse 7. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one at Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and the two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me one the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know that's what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. God won't answer Saul. Saul tries all the, the ways that God said that he would communicate. Prophets, Urim and Thummim, uh, dreams. And God doesn't answer. And Saul's desperate, so he turns to a medium. And he knows this is wrong. He knows this is sin. He's been wiping out the mediums. He's been getting them out of the country. In Deuteronomy 18, it's very clear. It says, you shall not consult a spiritist or a medium or someone who consults the dead. Instead, you are to listen to the voice of my prophets. God had said he would communicate through prophets. And Saul just said, well, God's not doing that. I'm trying it God's way and it didn't work. Besides, what I'm really after is consulting a prophet. It just happens to be a dead one, but it's a prophet. This is the one prophet that would ever talk to Saul. Unfortunately for Saul, he never had a whole lot of good to say to Saul. But this was the prophet that would talk to Saul. So, so Saul starts rationalizing what he's doing. He's just trying to talk to Samuel like he's supposed to. Saul, as we'll see later on, is an expert at rationalization, at justification, at finding the, the technical way through avoiding God's word, what God has said. I uh, drive the school bus at coal on, on the, in the mornings. I really enjoy this. It gives me a, a chance to be around a lot of elementary school kids. And their ability to rationalize and justify sometimes is astounding in its, in its artistry. Uh, you know, you tell them to sit down and they claim that if any part of their body is in any way touching the seat, that qualifies. You know, you go and you talk to them, and, it's, and, and there's always a reason. There's always something else that's been going on, always an excuse, always a justification. I think my favorite uh, instance of uh, elementary school kids justifying their behavior, I uh, was observing this one little boy who always acted up because he seemed like he had no friends. So I took a couple of kids aside, 
and I said, you know, why don't you play with Johnny today? They said, oh, we always play with Johnny. In fact, our whole class plays with Johnny. I said, well, that's great. What do you play? Oh, we play Ditch Johnny. (laughs) You know, technically, they were doing what I was suggesting. They were doing, they were playing with Johnny. But where was their heart? What was their motivation? And the same question comes back on Saul. Where's his heart? What's his motivation? Where is he coming from? He has asked this woman to call up Samuel, knowing full well that it's sin. And so she does. Uh, Look at verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice. And she said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. And Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Saul tells this woman to call up Samuel, and as soon as she does, she freaks. She starts screaming. I'm not altogether sure she expected to see Samuel. She was a spiritist. She had been dealing with uh, demons, with spirits, What she was probably expecting was for one of these spirits to give her messages supposedly from somebody who was dead. But here was a real dead person spirit coming out of the grave. And she is scared. She starts screaming. And somehow, right away, she knows who Saul is. Maybe Samuel's first question is, Saul, what do you want? But immediately she knows who Saul is. And she now she's freaking out because of that. Here's the guy that kills mediums. This poor woman was not having a good day. (laughs) Saul reassures her and he says, tell me what Samuel has to say. So Samuel speaks to Saul. He says, Saul, why are you bothering me? Why did you disturb me? Sounds somewhat annoyed. He didn't want to come back. He didn't want to leave where he was and come back. Last week, uh, my sister-in-law, Ginger, and her family came up from California on the on the ride up, she read a book by a woman who uh, had a, a cardiac arrest after some surgery. Apparently, she was technically dead for, for a considerable time before they revived her. During that time, she had some experiences that, that changed her life. She not only saw a bright light, she, she, she saw Jesus. She was in His presence. She spoke with Him, walked with Him. When she was revived... She did not at all want to come back. I have a friend here in this congregation who became a believer as a result of one of these these types of near-death experiences. She had just given blood. She had a brief cardiac arrest on the table after giving blood. And they revived her. But again, during that time, she, she saw a bright light. She was aware of Jesus' presence. And that's what... Dro- what, what, what drew her to put her faith in Jesus. But again, when it came time to open her eyes, she did not want to come back. 
Now, what do we do with these kinds of experiences? How do we understand them? How do we, we process them? You, you can't really argue with people's experience. If somebody says, this happened to me, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I felt, you can't contradict that. I'm not sure we even want to. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on these things. First of all, I think we need to qualify these types of experiences as near-death experiences. Uh, the scripture says in Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. The passage tells us that, that as humans, we die finally, completely, once. So these are not after-death experiences. These are near-death experiences where, from a, a technical standpoint, from our definitions, if the heart stops, then, then they're dead. Well, that, that's not full death. It's near death. But that doesn't invalidate what they experienced. How do you deal with what they experienced? You know, how do you interpret it? That's where the real problems and the real dangers come in, in interpreting and understanding. You know, was this a, a real spiritual experience? Was it just a psychological experience like a dream? Is it from God? Are they accurately remembering what they felt and saw and and heard and these kinds of things. You know, I can't answer any of these questions. But I can say that these experiences, as with any experience, need to be subordinated to the Word of God. See, we don't get our theology from experiences. We don't even get our understanding of what life is going to be like after death from experiences. The Word of God must remain our sole source of definitive information about all of these things. The things that we learn in Scripture, we hold too tightly. Because that's the way God has chosen to communicate with us. The things we learn from experience, we hold too loosely. We say, I think this is what it may mean. Perhaps, maybe. So what do I do with my friend's experience? I say, that's great. That's neat. Was it from God? As far as I know, uh, she believes it was, and I have no reason, no desire to contradict her. Will I gain my understanding of God from her experience or others? Not a bit. But see, that doesn't uh, inhibit me from being able to be happy and delight with my sister who had such a sweet experience. Anyway, back to Samuel. His situation was not a near-death experience. It's very clear. He was buried. He was dead. And he came back to life. Or at least his spirit revisited the earth. His body did not. Now, was that really Samuel? Well, Scripture seems to indicate that it was. It gives us no alternatives. There's at least one other instance in uh, Scripture where someone who has been buried, dead, for quite some time returns. And that, that's when Elijah and Moses visit Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 6. It's very interesting what happens there. Jesus is on the mountain uh, with three of his disciples, and they're sleeping. And, my, and Moses and Elijah rejoin Jesus, and they're talking with Jesus. And the disciples wake up, and boy, they're excited. This is a supernatural event. And Peter, who's always a spokesman, jumps up and says, this is great. Let me build some shelters so that they can stay and they can teach us and tell us what life is about and, and what happens after death. And he's so excited. His mind's buzzing with questions. And while he's still talking, 
The voice of God comes from a cloud. It says, this is my son. Listen to him. See what happened? When it was just Jesus, Peter was sleeping. That's just Jesus. But when somebody came back from the dead, man, that's news. That's exciting. That's something to write a book about. God said, wait a minute, Peter, you got it all wrong. This is Jesus. He's the one that you should be excited about. Listen to Him. You know, that's a correction we need. We have the teachings and the words of Jesus in our Bibles. We so rarely bother to pick them up and read them. But if someone supposedly comes back from the dead, man, we gobble that up. We call Geraldo or Sally or, or Oprah. We get all excited. But there's nothing wrong with interest in these things as casual interest. But the Word of God should be our abiding and our absorbing passion. That's where the truth is. That's where we understand life in reality. And there's another passage in Luke that, that, that drives this home. In Luke 16, Jesus is telling a story about uh, a very rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. This is a made-up story that Jesus is telling to make a point. This Lazarus is, is, is so poor. He has nothing to eat. He dreams of just being able to eat the food that the rich man scrapes off his plate when he's finished eating. The dogs would come and lick Lazarus' sores. He had no help, no medical care. Ends up both of these guys die. Lazarus goes to heaven. is with Abraham. And uh, the rich man goes to hell. And from hell, he can see Abraham and Lazarus on, on, in heaven. And he calls out to Abraham and he says, Send Lazarus to, to help me, to bring me some water. Abraham says, Sorry, can't do that. There's a, there's a chasm that, that separates us. You can't come this way and we can't go that way. And the rich man says, Then go send Lazarus back to my family on earth. Tell them what will happen if they don't repent. And I want to read to you Abraham's response. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. See, Jesus' point in telling that story is that we have Moses and the prophets. That's the way they used to refer often to the Bible in those days. We have the Bible. And if someone doesn't listen to that, they're not going to listen to someone who comes to them from the dead. They're going to explain it away. They're going to come up with another theory. They're going to believe what they want to believe. In fact, I think the reason that so many people, including Christians, are turning elsewhere for information for truth they're turning to spiritists and to mediums and to astrology and to psychology and to science and to 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 uh, politicians and to preachers they're looking anywhere to find alternative answers to what's already given in scripture they want answers that they like rather than answers that they don't like from scripture that's exactly what Saul was doing in our story. Picking up in verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, 
Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He says, I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by the prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines tomorrow. And your son, or you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. Samuel says, Man, I already told you what was going to happen back way back when I was alive. Now, why are you asking again? Do you notice that he doesn't answer Saul's question. Saul's question was, what should I do? And Samuel's response is, that's the wrong question, man. doesn't really matter what you do. It's too late. It's over. You're toast. Poor Saul. All he wants is somebody to tell him what to do. He wants God to give him a plan. But it's too late. Why? Well, because... A specific course of action is not the critical thing here. What's critical is righteousness. Righteousness is the key to the future. And Saul had abandoned righteousness, therefore he abandoned his future. You see, our focus should not be so much, what's going to happen next? And how can I come out on top? How can I get ahead? Our focus should be on, what is the right thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? What is the thing that will bring honor to God? And when we answer those questions, God takes care of the details. He'll win the battles for us. He'll handle our future and we've got absolutely nothing to worry about. Righteousness is the key to the future. And when you abandon righteousness, you abandon your future. Samuel, when he was rebuking Saul there, referred back to what happened with the Amalekites. When Saul refused to wipe out the Amalekites, as the point where Saul's heart became clear. He says, that's when God made the decision he was going to take the kingdom away from you. Well, what happened back there? I'm going to turn back to chapter 15. You don't need to do that because I'm not going to read much of it. Just for time's sake, I need to uh, summarize Basically, what happens is that God sent Samuel to Saul to commission him, to, to anoint him as king and to commission him to wipe out the Amalekites. That was the first duty of the first Israelite king. Now, the Amalekites, the reason for this is that when Moses and the people were, they were in the desert, uh, most of the nations there feared God and let the people of Israel pass through. But not the Amalekites. They kept harassing and attacking. They would stalk Israel. When, when a group of people would fall behind, they would jump, pounce on those people and kill them and rob them. And they waited for a chance, a weakness, and at a place called Massa Meribah, 
where Israel was out of water. They were tired. They were worn out. They began fighting among themselves. That's when the Amalekites attacked, tried to wipe out Israel. God delivered Israel, but he said at that point that he would wipe out the Amalekites entirely. Then in Deuteronomy 25, when, when God has given instructions to the people once they go into the land, he says, when you have a king, that king's job, first job, is to, is to wipe out the Amalekites and to fulfill that prophecy. So now that was Saul's job. So he goes ahead and he attacks the Amalekites and he has a victory over them. God gives him the victory. But he doesn't obey God. He doesn't wipe them out. He keeps the king alive because now Saul's a king and he doesn't like the practice of killing kings. Kings should be treated special. Secondly, he keeps some of the best stuff for himself. As the scripture put it, the best of the sheep and the cattle, everything that was good, he was unwilling to destroy. But he destroyed everything that was useless and detestable. So God had said that nothing, not even a single stitch of clothing, not even a single animal should be kept alive. But Saul was unwilling to do that. Saul's obedience only went as far as what was convenient, what was reasonable, what it seemed like he really wanted to do anyway. People, that's not obedience. Selective obedience is not obedience. It's convenience. You do what you wanted to do anyway. Maybe you modify it a little. But true obedience doesn't come in until we do what we don't want to do, simply because God said it. Or we don't do what we really want to do, simply because God said it. That's what true obedience is. Recently I was talking to a young man who's living with a woman he's not married to, and he asked me point blank what I thought. I said, well, it's wrong. And it's foolish. It's damaging to the future potential between the two of you. Boy, was he angry. He was incensed. He was offended. How could I be so judgmental? How could I be so bigoted, so insensitive to his feelings? Well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be judgmental. I don't mean to act self-righteous at all. But God said, it is wrong. And when God said that, He put a period at the end of the sentence. We're constantly trying to change those periods into question marks. We want a religion that makes us feel good about ourselves, not one that tells us what to do. Anyway, back to where Saul disobeyed God there in, in chapter 15. Samuel catches up to Saul and says, What have you done? Saul said, I obeyed God. I wiped out the Amalekites, kind of. And uh, Samuel says, what's that sound I hear? It sounds like sheep to me. So I said, oh yeah, well, well, the soldiers, they kept some of the stuff. And then later on he says, well, I couldn't stop them. I was afraid to oppose them. Everybody was doing it. And then a little later he says, uh, well, really the reason that we kept all this stuff was to offer it to God later on as a sacrifice. Yeah, that was it. You know, he just keeps squirming. He keeps covering. He keeps dodging. Listen to Samuel's words. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Saul rejected God's word. He always looked for a way around it, under it, to ignore it, 
You're always just looking for a justification, a legal loophole, some way to get out of doing what God has called him to do. Did you hear what he said too, what Samuel said too, when he said, rebellion is like the sin of divination? See, back in chapter 15, Saul would never have dreamed of being involved with a spiritist. But by chapter 28, that's exactly what he's doing. And Samuel also said, the arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Well, back in chapter 15, Saul would never have considered being an idolater. That's exactly what he turned into by chapter 28. See, what God had done was just stripped away, revealed the direction of his heart. See, we're sitting here. Everything's looking good. We would never consider being involved in spiritism. But he says, rebellion is as the the sin of divination. We would never consider being involved in idolatry. But if you are not obeying God, if you're putting your own uh, thoughts and logic, your own desires and plans above His Word and His will, that's exactly where you're headed. That's exactly what you're doing. That is rebellion and idolatry. You're worshiping yourself, serving yourself rather than God. Well, I'm out of time, more than. So let me just tell you what happens in chapter 29. Chapter 29, God gets David out of the jam. He turns the hearts of the Philistine kings so that they tell Achish, man, you can't have this guy here. We'll be in the midst of the battle. He'll turn on us, which is probably what David would have done. But they send David away in peace. They say, no hard feelings, just go away. So God delivers him out of his problem. Now, this is the point of the whole thing. you got two guys here. Basically, simply put, Saul sins, God rejects him. David sins, God rescues him. Why? Now, was, was Saul's sin worse than David's? Not at all. Then what's going on here? The difference between the two. They're both sinners. But the difference between the two is that, they, that, that Saul treats God as an object. A thing to be manipulated and used for his own ambitions. David treats, relates to God as a person. To be loved, understood, cared for. Saul treats God as an object. David treats God as a person. And as a result, when they sin, Saul tries to get out of it, tries to cover it up, tries to control the situation so that he won't lose his ability to use God for whatever he's after. David, on the other hand, is heartbroken that he has hurt God. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil In thy sight. He faces his sin. He deals with God with integrity. Face to face. Person to person. Saul views uh, God's will as something to be used and manipulated for his own plans. If if the prophet doesn't tell you what you want to hear, find another prophet. Go to another church. If you can't find a prophet to tell you what you want to hear, go to a medium. A spiritist. Someone who, who, who can tell you what you want to hear. Someone who, who can say the right words and do the right rituals and control the future. Control God. See, that's the whole uh, concept behind black magic. is Saying the right words. Doing the right things to control the spirits. Well, unfortunately, that's behind most of our religion as well. Saying the right words. Doing the right rituals to make God do what we want Him to. Claiming the, the right promises. Doing the right religious acts. 
You see, for David, these religious acts were a way of expressing his gratitude to God, his love for God, pouring out his feelings and his needs before God. Saul wants guidance to know the lucky thing to do. David wants guidance to know the right thing to do. Saul views God's word as a legal document to be used to maximum advantage and to be circumvented when he can't. David views God's word as something to meditate on, to learn, to delight in. Because in doing that, he gets to see who God is, to know God as a person, what God wants and thinks and feels. And he can serve God in ways that will bring delight to God. The bottom line is both these people were sinners, both in need of God's grace. One received it, the other didn't. Saul tried to use God. David loved God. That gets us to to the question here. What are you doing here? Are you here to love God? Or are you here to uh, have a, a bit of religion, to get some religious advantage in your life? See, both probably look about the same, but the end of each is radically different. Remember, God will not be used, but He will be loved. He loves you and wants an honest, personal relationship with you. That's the choice, and we've seen where both choices end up. So you choose. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I do confess so often I I don't look at you as a person. I look at you as someone to be uh, manipulated, used, that if I don't do the right things, that uh, somehow I'll, I'll get unlucky. Rather than looking the fact that I've hurt someone I care about. Lord, I want to be like David, whose heart was after you, who really loved you, wanted to know you, wanted to, uh, to please you. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would open our eyes to how we treat you, that we would treat you as a friend, as a person. Amen.